references this morning. First passage is in Haggai chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you have brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. And the second passage is from the book of Matthew at chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it has its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Amen. Thank you, Larry, for sharing the word of the Lord with us this morning. Um, I want to, uh, I'm going to jump right in really quickly in a second here, but first I just want to say it's been a, it's been a big week here. This was the last week of school. If you have kids in school, it was the last week of school, and now you've got a week with them at home, or maybe you're going on a trip, or I'm not sure what you're doing, but that's a, a big a transition, and this is family day weekend for some of you, and many of you will have the Monday off, so... Hopefully you've got great plans in store. Also, Friday was Valentine's Day. Hey, that's pretty significant. Um, if you didn't realize that until just now, um, we do have therapists standing by uh, for the men who might be in trouble. No, there's nothing we can do for you, actually, at this point. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> Start planning for next year. It's going to be a long year, by the way. Um, I'm joking. I'm joking. Mostly. Hey, if you've been reading the story, and let me just really promote this again. Once again, we, in, early in September, we started as a church to read the story together. And we gave away copies, and there's still our copies we can give away. So if you're just 
joined us in the last couple weeks, or maybe this is your first Sunday here and you're planning to go forward with this church, get a copy of this. We'll give you a copy for one per family free at the info desk. And uh, what it is, uh, let me just read you the, I'll read you the excerpt on the back. It says, the greatest story ever told is more than a cliche. God is more than a cliche. God goes to great lengths to rescue lost and hurting people. This is what the story is all about, the story of the Bible, God's great love affair with humanity. Condensed into 31 accessible chapters, the story sweeps you into the unfolding progression of biblical characters and events from Genesis to Revelation. Using the clear, accessible text of the NIV Bible, it allows the stories, poems, and teachings of the Bible to read like a novel. And like any good story, the story is filled with intrigue, drama, conflict, romance, and redemption. And this story is true. So we've been reading the story together. And this week, if you were reading in the story, um, you would have read some pretty great stuff from guys that you might not normally have read from, guys like Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah. And, um, and all of that is pointing to Jesus. So let's jump in. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we don't think about how we're living until we've been splattered with pig slop. You know, Jesus tells a story. Jesus tells this very interesting story about a, a son who tells his dad, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait until you die. I want to go off. And he, his dad surprisingly gives him the inheritance. He goes off to a far country. And the Bible actually says he spends that money on parties and prostitutes. So some pretty wild living. And he runs out of money. There's a famine in the land. And he ends up, the only job he can get, because he's, he's broke and he's completely unemployable, except for he can get a job working for a farmer feeding the pigs. And so he's feeding the pigs, and he's covered in pig slop, and he's hungry for pig slop. It's gotten that bad. And that's when he comes to his senses and says, man, if I was just a servant even in, back in my father's house, I'd have food. And, and, uh, and that's when he changes things. And um, it's sort of a lot like how we live our lives in many ways. We often don't change the things we're doing until we hurt enough to change. Until the pain threshold gets high enough that we want to change. Before that, we can sort of know there are things that we're doing in our lives that are destructive or unhelpful or, or not good. And, uh, but it isn't until we really sense this great dissatisfaction in our lives that sometimes we wake up and like the prodigal son, we come to our senses. And there's some big similarities between Jesus' story of the son who finally wakes up and the story we're going to look at today about the nation of Israel and how they finally woke up. It's the story of the Jewish people living in Jerusalem after they came back from captivity in Babylon. And you can see our posters as they're moving from uh, creation. Of course, God along the way calls Abraham and, and his descendants to show himself to the world, right? Creation is God has this intimate relationship with mankind. Then there's the fall, basically, that, uh, where Adam and Eve say, we want our way rather than God's way. And God says, okay. And the reality of that is they're separated from God. There's, and uh, and uh, now they're living, God, living distant from God. But God begins to enact his rescue plan and starts by calling Abraham saying, through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And I'm going to make you into a big nation. And this nation will be the demonstration to the world of what it looks like when God relates to his people. 
And so people will be able to see, in fact, I, I think it's very significant that Israel's in smack in the middle of, of Africa and Europe and Asia. So it's like if you wanted to pick a front row seat for everybody to see how God interacts with the nation, well, Israel's in the perfect location. And so God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show the nation what I am like and how I want to be in relationship with people through you. And... Um, Sometimes they respond in, in that wonderful relationship with God, but many times they rebel, and that's how they come to go into captivity. We've learned over the last few weeks that the northern kingdom of Israel was, uh, didn't have any good kings, didn't turn to God. They, in 200 years, they just totally rejected God for 200 years, and they were overthrown by the, uh, the, the kingdom of Assyria. The southern kingdom lasted at least 100, about 150 years longer than that because they did at times return to God. But in the end, they had a real string of kings in a row who didn't respond, and so they were overthrown by the nation that overthrew the Assyrians, which was the Babylonians. And at this point in the story, um, the, the ones from Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel, the ones who were taken away to Babylonia, they've been 70 years in captivity. So there's very few in their number who even were born in Jerusalem. In fact, there, there'd only be a few that would remember the days of the temple in Jerusalem and remember what it was like to live in Jerusalem. And then this totally surprised development comes, and I'll read, to, I'll read it to you in Ezra 1, 1 to 3. This is a total shocker that this happens. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, okay, the Assyrians were overthrown by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were overthrown by the, the Medes and Persians. And now it's considered the Persian kingdom. And uh, eventually the Greeks, Romans, you know, everyone gets overthrown eventually, right? But here's, it's the Persians. So in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, so there was a prophecy 70 years before, the Lord moved the heart of the king, of the heart, of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. So a couple of things in there. One, amazing, the God moves the heart of a king who I don't think is naturally necessarily a worshiper of the, of the, the God of the Jewish people. Uh, but to recognize that the Lord, the God of heaven, that he is that, and that also he is the God who is in Jerusalem. Two things, right? He's the God of heaven. He's the God of everything. He's given me all the kings of the earth, so he obviously is all-powerful, yet... There's some special relationship he has in that he resides in Jerusalem. Very interesting stuff. And so um, God is moving his heart to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, why is this so important to God? Why would he make sure this, this event was prophesied by Jeremiah? Why would he reveal his desire to the ruler of the world's biggest empire? And why would he move his heart so much that he would not only uh, call people to go back, to, but he would, he would bankroll it, he would, he would fund it? Why does the temple matter to God? Really? 
why does the temple really matter to God? I, I, you know, I've often puzzled at this myself, and looking into it a little deeper, I was just like, wow, this is just amazing stuff. Does God need a house to live in? No, he doesn't live in, in houses made by human hands. He doesn't need a house to live in. So that's not why the temple is important. But we need, and the Israelites need, the message that his temple communicates. That's the point of the temple. The temple is a picture, or it's a message, or it's a reminder of some very important things. Let me give you three very important uh, messages that the temple communicates. One is that God has a powerful passion for proximity. In other words, he longs to be close to his people. God wants to come near. And the temple communicated that, that right in the middle of the biggest city of, the, of, of Israel, in this nation that was to showcase to the world who God was, God was sending this message that he wants to be near his people. He desires to be close to his people. He wants to be Emmanuel. He wants to be God with us. So that's why the temple was right in the middle of, of, of Jerusalem. So you'd, every day you'd walk by it. If you see the temple, you'd go, wow, God wants to be close to us. God, it was God's idea to build this temple so that his presence could be right in the midst of us. But it also communicates something that's, that's the good news, but there's some bad news too, and, and that is the problem of sin. I told you that Adam and Eve chose their way as opposed to God's way. And so God enacted this rescue plan. Now, we're, the rescue plan isn't fully done yet at this point. And so at this point, it's being communicated every day by the temple that sin had separated people from a holy God. So if you go into the temple, you can just sort of walk into the temple and go right into the inner room and stuff like, yeah, this is cool. Like, can I take a tour of the temple? You didn't take like children's classes through the temple and get to see everything and stuff like that. The reality of the temple was there was a big, thick, tall curtain in between, between you, the person, and the holiest part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. In fact, nobody went to the Holies of Holies except for once a year. Once a year, a priest would get to go into the Holy of Holies, and that was only after a significant sacrifice had been made. One, one representative of the people could go in once a year. So the problem of sin was evidenced by the temple, that we are separated from God, His holiness, because of our sin. And then the final thing that the, the temple hints at very strongly is that God is providing a solution for sin. Right? The fact that people could not make up for their own sin was evident, but there was a need for another to pay their sin. And how did they see that? They saw that through, what did people do at the temple? They would bring a sacrifice. You'd bring maybe a lamb. You'd bring your best lamb. You'd bring the spotless lamb, and it would be a sacrifice, right? So, I mean, lamb, sheep, they were killed all the time for food and for all sorts of things, but this was special. This was special because it had very big significance to it. You'd say, you know what? This is covering the sins of the people. This is covering the sins of the people. Now, it didn't cover it forever. You have to keep doing these things. But it was a, it was a picture of um, that God was providing the solution for our sin. So, the temple was an educational tool. And it was getting people ready for the day when Jesus would come. Because when Jesus would come, they would be able to possibly connect the dots. God wants to be close to us. Wow, what is, what is more clear about God wants to be close to you is that God comes in human form to be among us. 
God became flesh and dwelt among his people. That's amazing. God really does want to be close to us. You know, I, I loved when we were reading that, uh, watching that Alpha video. Let me just, I wrote down two quotes from what we just watched, and I just thought this great. Um, There's this great love God has for you. You should come and experience it too. <laughs> That's awesome. That's what she said. There's this great God, love God has for you. You should come and experience it too. Just the simplicity of that. And then how did, when she experienced that, she just said, it's like the dark went away and the light came in. I just thought, oh my goodness. I got a little bit teared up when I thought about that. And also thought about some of my friends and some of my family who I would love for the dark to go away and for the light to come in. And I would love for them to experience the great love that God has for them. And God, that's God's heart. God would love for people to experience what he has for them. But there's this problem of sin, and uh, the temple was declaring all these things. Of course, it's, on this side of history, we can look back at Jesus, and we see the similarities between Jesus and the temple. In fact, Jesus said, when he was alive, he said, stuff, he, he referred to himself as the temple. People didn't get it, right? He was in the temple, and he'd say, yeah, well, the, you know, this temple will be... Uh, tore down and then rebuilt in three days and everybody's like they thought he's talking about the building but he's talking about himself one thing you need to know about in the new testament when you talk about temple you're not talking about uh unless it was a conversation about the actual building you're not the spiritual temple the equivalent of the old testament temple is you and me is you and me it's the, the equivalent of the old testament temple is not a church building it's actually people where the Spirit of God wants to dwell, right? He wants to dwell in us. So the temple is important, but here's the problem. Um, people were, uh, well, let's just get into it here. Initially, God's big thing, sending the people back from captivity into uh, Jerusalem and, and Judea and rebuilding the temple, initially, God's big thing was their big thing too. Almost 50,000 people went with a guy named Zerubbabel. <laughs> Great name, eh? Kids' names, you know. If you're pregnant, think about Zerubbabel. And you know, Zerubbabel took 50,000 people back. They have a huge group, and they start right away. And they, one of the first things they do is they rebuild the altar. Let me just read it to you. It says, when this, Ezra 3, 1 to 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the peoples assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of... Zodak and his, fe his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice birth offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both in the morning and evening sacrifices. So this is great. This is great. They built the altar first. They worked hard. They rolled up their sleeves. They really got at it. They restored the practice of recognizing the realities of their sin through the sacrificial system. It's a great first step. But what about finishing the temple? Well, after a few years, they lost their focus. And they began to turn their focus to their own personal endeavors, their own businesses, their own farms, their own houses, until eventually no one showed up at the work site. God's big thing became their small and forgotten thing. Now, I'm sure they didn't intend to do this initially. I'm sure they didn't intend to abandon the project forever. They probably said, we'll come back to that tomorrow or next week or next month. But as the weeks and months went by, it became 16 years. 16 years passed and the temple project sat untouched. It was an abandoned construction site. 
And that's enough time, I think, for the surrounding nations to think, hey, maybe God's work and what God is saying through the temple, maybe it's not that important to them. I think it's probably 16 years is probably enough time for their kids to think that too, right? What's that, what's that abandoned work project over there, Dad? Uh, that was the temple. We, um, yeah, we're sort of working on other stuff right now. We're sort of busy with other stuff. There's other stuff we've got to get done. And, and uh, well, what's the significance of the temple? Well, you know, it, it says a few things to the world about God's special relationship with us. Oh, but it's not that special, is it? Because obviously no one's working on it. Well, son, let's not talk about these things. God's house was an abandoned construction site while their houses were getting significant upgrades. And Haggai, the prophet, said it best. And you heard uh, it being read this morning. Um, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? I don't know what paneling we sort of think of as a thing, you know, that used to be cool but not so cool anymore. But this is, must have been really cool then to panel your house, right? Is it a time for you yourself to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home... I blew away, declares the Lord. Because of my house, and why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Whew! How does God get our attention when we make his priorities neglected items or forgotten items? How does he get our attention? I think he gets our attention by the fact that when we don't make his priorities first, the secondary things stop working for us. Or another way to say it is life stops working for us. Right? Remember the prodigal son. How did, his, how did he wake up? How, did he, how, did, how was his attention gotten? Because life stopped working. It really stopped working. Splattered with pig slop, hungry for pig slop, and going, whoa, I didn't see this coming. Uh, it's it's wake-up time. What was happening with the people in Israel is that they were putting all their efforts into uh, not first priorities, but secondary priorities. Still important things. It's important. I mean, it's important to work hard and hustle if you're going to uh, have a business, right, or, or, or a career. That's important, right? It's important to work hard and, and to, uh, you know, have to have relationship and prioritize your family. That's important. Uh, there's lots of things you can give yourself to, um, but they're second things. And if you don't pay attention to the first thing, you, the second things will collapse as well. Think about the, well, our, one of our first readings, right? It was about the men who build their, uh, build their house on the rock and the ones who build their house on the sand. There's an amazing thing. And in Musha, we get this like no other place. It's all about the foundation, right? You go look for a house 
Moose Jaw is full of 100-plus-year-old houses, and it's wonderful. You go through and you go, this is amazing. I love what they've done. Look at these paneled walls or whatever they've done, you know? And you go, this is great. And you're thinking you're going to buy this house, and then you go into the basement and you go, oh, the foundation, right? Maybe I won't, or maybe I'll offer less, or maybe this needs repair, or this is the thing that needs to be addressed. Actually, if I moved in here, this would be the first priority. They've forgotten the first priority, and so now the things that were, that normally would work in life. In fact, the list is amazing. I find this list amazing. It's like, you plant, but you harvest little. You eat, but that doesn't work for you. You never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You put on clothes, you're not warm, you earn wages, and it's like you put them in a purse with holes in it. It's like all your efforts for secondary things are not working in your life because the primary thing is not there. You haven't built your house on a rock, you've built your house on a sand. And there's two ways that you can determine whether you built your house on the rock or the sand. One is that gradually over time you realize that everything else in your life is not working. Or, like the story Jesus told about the actual house on the rock and the house on the sand, it's the winds come, the waves come, and the house falls down. So you might either go, I have this sense in me that things aren't quite right. Or you could have a total meltdown crisis collapse. And either of those can get you the message. Either of those can get you the message that something's got to change. So God's telling them. Think, do you, are you wondering why it's not working for you? Are you wondering why you're spinning your wheels and you're not prospering? Are you wondering why you're, you're, uh, uh, all the things that normally work, they're designed to work, are not working in your life? It's because the thing that's meant to undergird all of those things, the thing that's meant to be the foundation in your life, the, uh, your relationship with God needs to be attended to. So this is God's response to misplaced priorities. It's how God gets our attention when we will not give him our attention. Psalm 32, 8 to 10 gives us a, a great promise and a great warning, and I think a great visual picture. Let me read this to you. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So this is the good picture, right? And he's going to use a horse analogy, so I'll start with the horse analogy. So if you've ever seen people who are, like, really in tune with their horses, it's amazing, right? They're like, they can whistle, and their horse will come. They can, like, sit on their horse, and they don't have to, like, kick it or anything. They just nudge it with their knee, and the horse moves to the right and left. Or they can just click their tongue, and the horse starts trotting. Wow, it's, I think it's amazing when people really are in tune with a horse. It's amazing. And then, have you ever seen someone, like, breaking a wild horse? I mean, there's probably different ways to do that, but that's a totally different story. It's like the only way you can get that horse's attention is uh, through some pretty uh, uh, severe means. Let me just read what this says. It says, Don't be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, or else they will not come near you. So God says, I'll instruct you, teach you in the way you should go. I'll nudge you. I'll prompt you. I, I, I'll, I'll whisper. I'll, I'll, that's all it should take. That's all it should take. Or, I can get your attention another way. If you're muley stubborn, 
It could be the pain threshold of your life that actually gets your attention. But God's design is not for that to be the natural way that we are led. We're natu- he wants to lead us uh, through instruction, through teaching. To guide you with my eye. It's just so simple. Like, just go here. Just do this. Just follow me. Just trust me. And it says at the end, many sorrows shall be to the wicked. So those who are resistant to God, they'll have many sorrows. Their pain threshold will go through the roof. They'll be covered in pig slop. They'll be drowning in pig slop before they wake up. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Can God instruct you and teach you? Simply, gently. Are you responsive to his instructions and teaching? Are you like the horse that responds to the friendly whistle, the gentle nudge, or the tongue click? How responsive are you? Or are you so mule stubborn that you can only be turned when you hurt enough? So either we give God our attention or he can get our attention. But our resistance and our neglect will mean it will be much more painful and full of regret. Now, I don't want you to take this too far. Here's the too far. You might be prone to thinking that every tiny tiny mishap in your life is an expression of God's anger or judgment towards you. Bad things do happen to good people. And God does not stop every bad thing. Right? He wants to be in a relationship with people who have free will. So you're about to step off the curb and a car is coming. You say, well, I wish God would just stop us all from stepping out in front of cars. Or you're about to speak something critical to someone in your family. Oh, I wish the Lord would just freeze my tongue. I don't think you really want a life where you don't have free will. Right? It's like you reach for another donut and, oh, you can't lift it. It's 100 pounds. Thank you, Lord. No, he's giving you a free will. Just like Adam and Eve, they had a free will. They could choose God's way or their own way. They chose their own way. We've been living with the repercussions ever since. But I don't want you to think, oh, I've got a cold. It must be God's judgment. Or, or, or that light turned red. I was hoping to get through it quicker. That must be God's judgment. That's, that's, I don't want you to go there. But in an extended season of challenge in your life, you maybe want to pay attention. It might be God calling you to wake up and to turn more fully to him. When nothing seems to work, when nothing quenches your deepest thirst, when no achievement seems deeply satisfying, when drought turns fields to dust and recessions turn retirement funds into pocket change, pay attention. When God allows times of difficulty to come, that's a really good time to examine our ways, to give careful thought to our ways. Now, it's very easy to get overwhelmed with all the things we feel we should be doing. I struggle with my time management. I don't know if anyone else does. I'm sure many of us do. But I struggle with that. This week I was, I was I, was it this week or the week before? I can't remember which. I was chatting with Kurt. Kurt's, I think he's better at time management than I am. So I was asking him some stuff about what he does. And he used, a, he used this app called Streaks. And in the app, you basically are trying to uh, develop habits and consistently do them every day that are healthy for your life. So you sort of try to figure out what you're going to do or maybe something you're not going to do, whatever. And you enter it into the app and then every day you sort of check at the end of the day and say, did I do them, did I do them, did I do them? And it's just a very simple app. So I downloaded it onto my phone and I started using it. And what were the priorities that I thought I wanted to do every day? Well, for me, it's uh, 
connection with my family. I, I have a wife and four children, so I have sort of a spot on the app for all four of them. Like, did I spend time with my youngest, my two-year-old girl, my, my six-year-old boy, my 14-year-old boy, and my 17-year-old boy becoming a man, and then my wife. And then did I spend time with God? So those are the six main ones. I have three backup ones, which are like getting to bed, getting up on time, and getting some exercise. But I, I pretty much, this keeps my time. <laughs> I barely get to the other three. <laughs> but, you know, those are the, my, my main six. And, you know, it's interesting, as I've been using it, um, it's been helpful to me because it's a reminder every day that I want to do this every day, right? And so it's neat. I've developed a few streaks where I'm like, hey, there's three days in a row where I was able to connect with the two-year-old. Hey, look, I got four days of, of bedtime with my six-year-old. That's awesome. Oh, I'm missing a couple days here with this one, and I'm doing this. Now, just to say, I don't walk around the house and sort of say, oh, by the way, I want to get this off my app, so can I give you a hug and thank you, honey? All right. <laughs> Although, I will tell you one quick story this Okay, quick. Um, I'd read somewhere that it's really great if husbands and wife hug, and not just like a perfunctory like hug and then tap out, but actually hug for like 20 seconds. Do a 20-second hug at least once a day. So I'd read that, and I thought, I'm going to put that in practice. And uh, so I'm hugging Marnie, and she's like, what's going on here? <laughs> and so I told her. I said, well, I read this thing about 20-second hugs and stuff like that. So then it was like a few days later, I gave her another hug, and, and um, we're, you know, just a few seconds into the hug, and she says, are you counting in your head? And, you know, <laughs> I mean, some people can do this naturally. I need, I need help. I need lots of help. Do you know which one of the six is the hardest for me to do? You already know, don't you? Time with God. If I don't spend time with my two-year-old, she lets me know. If I don't spend time with my six-year-old, lets me know. My teenagers, not so much, but I notice the difference if I don't spend time with them. My wife will let me know. So the easiest one to neglect is my time with God. I found it every day. He's the most accessible. I don't have to hunt for where he is. I don't have to convince them to get off a video game to spend time with me. I, he's the most accessible. And the easiest one to miss. Some of you know, I've been, we've been renovating in our basement uh, to get a couple bedrooms for the teenage guys and then to get an office for me. And I've told you that that office is going to be prayer central for me. And you know what? We renovated, we worked hard, and, and obviously we had other people, craftsmen, who did an amazing job and helped us. We painted and did flooring, and we got, we got the rooms ready. The boys are in them. We got the ping pong table repaired. We, we broke it at a wild party once. And uh, now we're fixed it again, and we got everything ready. And, and it's like, all this thing's done. Guess what got neglected? Steve's office, prayer central. Why? Because God's not whining at me every day to get it done. I'm not saying anyone else did, by the way, about the other things. But I'm just saying. <laughs> Too many stories. Okay. Here's the reality. This is how you go 16 years neglecting the temple. This is how you go 16 years neglecting the work of God in your life. There's not, there's no, you're not reading in a magazine. You're not flipping. You have something saying, hey, are you saving for your retirement? Are you getting enough exercise? Are you using this lotion every day? You don't have a page that says, are you spending time with your Lord and Savior? And so it's easy for it to be neglected. 
It's easy for it to be. But God will not be a secondary thing. In fact, here's the thing. I think, oh, man, I, I'm, I'm responding to these urgent cries, to these squeaky wheels, to people who need me. I'm responding to all these things, and God's getting neglected. You know what? You are diminishing in every way the quality of your responsiveness to all the people who need you if you're neglecting God. What do my wife and children need from me? They need a guy who's becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what they need. They need a guy who's becoming less selfish, less manipulative, less driven about the wrong things, more truthful, more loving, more gracious, more forgiving, more patient. That's what they need. So I might think, man, I'm, I'm doing this stuff. I'm, I'm really touching all the people, making sure everybody's okay. I'm doing everything I should be doing. You know what? The core that undergirds it all is, is my house being built on the rock? Is it being built on relationship with Christ? That's what's going to fuel those other things. That's what's going to change the quality of those interactions dramatically. And so what happens in our lives is, is we, we stray from that. We think we can make the rest of our lives work, and they, they don't work. So how do we come back? That's what the sermon's about. How do we come back? We're coming back. These people, they, they left Babylon. God saved them from Babylon. He brought them back to Jerusalem. And well, how did they come back? You know what they did? They heard the message of the prophet, and they responded. And then they went back to making God's temple a priority, God's work in their lives. Remember, it's not about a building. It's actually about the work of God in your life and making it a priority again. So how do we come back? Jesus had a great word for a church in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. And it says this. He says, I have this against you. He actually had said some really nice things about them before this. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So three words in there that are really helpful. I read it out of the New King James because it's got those three words. Remember. Remember. Right? The prodigal son. I remember the meals around dad's table. I remember when I had a close relationship with dad. I remember, and now I'm in the pig slop. Wow. Right? Maybe you, for some of you, you might be able to say, whoa, I remember when I was so passionate about the things of the Lord. I was so passionate about the work of God in my life. But something else is crowded in. Something else has become that first passion. Something else has become my main focus. And now I could, I'm experiencing some of the ramifications. Or maybe you haven't really recognized that yet in yourself yet, but you will. It's coming for you. So remember, and then repent, right? Repent. Lord, I'm sorry. I've been building my house and neglecting yours. I'm sorry. This passage of Scripture and this Sunday morning is a chance for us to reconsider our ways and to turn from them. And then do the first works, it says. Do the first works. I had a great, inspiring uh, lunch meeting with the chairman of our elder board, Phil Adkins, and, uh, it, just this last week. And he was just talking about how he's been thinking in depth about what are the basics of, of following Jesus. And, and just talking about things like prayer and service and loving your neighbor and reading God's word and all, 
Awesome stuff. And I just thought, yeah, it's coming back to do the basics, just like Kurt said earlier in the message. Uh, I didn't pay him to say that, but I thought that was great, about why are you a black belt? Because you do the basics, and you do them well, and you do them consistently in your life. So if you put God into first place, you let him lead, then all the second place things will fall into order. You still have to attend to your business, your house, your education, whatever pursuits. But they will not work like you think they will work unless they're undergirded by relationship with Christ. Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You know who recorded this? Matthew, a money-obsessed tax collector, comes to faith in Jesus. And when he hears Jesus say these words, he's like, I'm going to remember those words if I ever write an account of what's happening. (laughs) Because I used to live for making money any which way I could, even compromising my morals to make money amongst the Jewish people. And now Jesus is telling me a whole new different way to live and prioritize my life. I'm curious. You know what? I'd love to hear testimonies. Not actually, we don't have time for it this morning, but just quickly, I'm going to end with this and, and we'll move to the end here. I bet in this room, there are many of you who can testify to the fact that when you put God first, the secondary things started to work again. I mean, I wonder if there's some in the room who you put God's first and you noticed that it helped your business. I'm not saying that that's always going to be the case or that's, you know, you'll succeed when others fail necessarily because that. But, but I bet there's some in your life where you say, actually putting God's first changes how I do business. I, anyone recognize that? You say that in your life? It changes how I do business or how I am at work. Anyone recognize that a little bit? Just give me a wave. Just, even if you notice it a little bit in your life, you know it's not the full thing. You say, I'm not perfect businessman or I'm not. Yeah, some of you recognize that. Or how about this? You put God first and your family's healthier because of it. Maybe relationally, maybe even physically, but you notice that. When you start to put God first, something changed. Okay? How, about, how many of you notice that? This is a crazy one. You put God first and your body's healthier. Anyone notice that? You put God's first and suddenly you start to notice differences physically. Yeah. Some people, when they put God's first, they sleep better at night. Has anyone had that experience? You start putting God's first and you sleep better at night. Okay. Okay. This is real stuff. This is real stuff. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. But if you put second things first, you lose both first and second things. So what do we need? Last month, we had a prayer summit. 70 people came. It was amazing. A big part of it was making a fresh dedication for 2020 to God. Just making a fresh dedication with our lives. Um, For the Israelites, they recognized uh, our life isn't working like it should. Let's get back to the work of God that he wants to do, how he wants to tell the nations about who he is through, through witnessing our interaction with God. I have that, that's my prayer for Hillcrest. That's a pr- not for Hillcrest the building, for Hillcrest the people. That's a prayer for me as well, is that God, that I would be 
in tune with the work that God wants to do in my life. I'd be responsive to his nudges and his promptings and how he wants me to obey so that other people who I would love for the love of God to break in in their life in a very powerful way can look at the temple and start to understand some of the things that that temple says. And the temple is you and the temple is me where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell. I'd love for people to know that God wants to come near to them and be in relationship with them and that even though sin separates us from experiencing that, that God himself has provided the way for that to be overcome through sending Jesus. I'd love for people to be able to see what it's like for people to be in relationship with God, the joy that it brings, the hope that it brings, uh, the way that it helps them uh, live life every day. And so that's what I desire for us, and that's what I desire for you. And I want to end our time with a prayer of commitment. It's, we've used it many times, and it's a prayer you could pray every day, and it's a prayer you could pray as your first prayer you ever prayed. But it's simply a prayer of commitment to the Lord. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and, and I'm going to lead, and you can repeat after me, but it's not about the action of a prayer it's about a heart that responds to God and says, okay, God, I do need to make a fresh dedication to you for my life. I do need to make sure that I'm building everything that I'm building. And I bet you guys are busy people. You're building a lot of stuff that's built on a solid foundation. It's built on the rock. It's built on uh, responsiveness to God. And that's what Jesus said is the foundation he who hears my words and obeys. He who hears my words and does them. He's the one who's building the foundation on the rock. It's responsiveness to God that's the foundation. And that's what I think God has for all of us. So let me lead you in this prayer of commitment. And again, just offer all that you have. This morning we put things in the offering plate. It's offering time again. <laughs> but this time it's us. Offer yourself in a fresh dedication to the Lord. So I invite you to repeat after me. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, we honor you today. We honor you today. Thank you that you desire to lead and instruct us. And, uh, and you've, you just made it clear again and again that uh, your intentions for us are to give us a hope and a future that's worth living for. So we want to enter into that and not shy away from that. And Lord, I think everyone can relate with my struggle, the reality of being pulled away to do all these other things and to neglect uh, that relationship with you. So, Lord, I ask uh, that you'd show us strategies, techniques. Those are helpful. But mostly that our heart would be in the right place. Our heart would be in the right place to even implement a plan to restore your work in our lives to front and center, to first priority, to put it on the, the big burner. We want it to heat up that value in our lives so hot that it affects everything else in our lives. Lord, through relationship with you, through responsiveness to you, 
We want to be a blessing in our families. We want to be a blessing in this community. We want so many people to come into that, that explosion of love in their hearts because they finally get it that you are for them, not against them, and that you have so much in store for their future. So, Lord, make us a people of first things. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.